It's good to have you here. We're at the end of a series um, where we've been going through our mission statement, um, and we've called this Better Together. If you've got your Bibles, um, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we finish off this series um, and just kind of come to an end and land it um, with this final, the, the message of our mission. Um, if you've got your Bible or the NBC app, your notes and scripture will be on the NBC app. If you've got your own Bible, um, please turn there. And while you're turning there, just to review where we've come from. We've gone through our mission statement bit by bit as we've talked through the fact that when we say that we're a community of Christ followers, what we're saying is that God has created us to have community, that Christianity, our faith, is not a a solo project. We can't follow God in isolation, that he actually, this great God calls us to gather, and so that's what we do. Our action statement is to weekly commit to, to do that. But we don't just leave it there of just showing up. We actually say, who else in my world isn't exposed to this a community where they can worship God collectively? And so we go on out and we like say, well, let's bring them on in. And we want to, and some of you here are the people that, that were invited by a friend, a family member, or a loved one. And you were just like, there's no way I'm going to church. And then look at you, you're here. And so th- there's something about that. But this concept of gathering together is, is great, but it's not the end of the strategy or the end of our story. Jesus had a face-to-face strategy where he engaged a real-with-each-other type of perspective, where you could actually go through life and ask questions and doubts and, and go through the ups and downs with one another, that, that you're not just in an, a row as a spectator, but you're actually entering into a community where people know you. And these groups, are we plant them all throughout our church, whether it's CR, or re-engage, or real-life groups. We want people to be in groups. And again, that's a great step, but we say, okay, but find someone who's already part of the community of Christ followers who are real with God, but they're not having that real with each other encounter and step into that. The past three weeks now, we've been going through talking about real in the world. And the fact that God has strategically placed us all around this area, that that these represent all the little homes that that are Manuka Bible Church folks. And when we gather together, we realize that, yes, we are part of this big old bubble of Manuka Bible Church, but we know each other. and And that we're not just about us, we're about the fact that we are greater together. We make more of an impact for God and his glory in this community and across oceans when we're together than if we were in isolation. And that one of those little dots is you. And the truth is that God has put like, he's dropped a pin where he's surrounded you with people. And that is your vocation. That is your calling. Whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you're someone who's in the workforce or you're retired, regardless, that your calling is that God has strategically planted you around a group of people. And here, now, the final week of the series, we're talking about what he has strategically planted you for. It's a communication piece to communicate the message of what we call the gospel. Now, everyone has heard the word gospel, and it sounds super fuddy-duddy because it's associated with a terrible style of music. But the truth is, I'm sorry, I meant southern gospel. Oh, <laughs> I made even more enemies. Yeah! All right. I, okay, so gospel is so much more than that because gospel is a word that even predates Christianity. It simply means good news, and it was a political statement. It's like good news, everything is changing, radically altered because of whatever's happening with, with whatever Caesar's doing or anyone else. This is good news. We've won the war. Things have changed. What Good news, gospel. The Christians hijacked this word. They commandeered it. And they said that this word does not just mean good news politically that's going to be for this section of time and then it's going to get overthrown by the next coup. 
This is a good news that lasts for all time. It's how God engaged humanity, how Jesus intersected the timeline of history, but more than that, because that's just religion. This gets personal because the gospel is not only a story, it is my story. I am part of the gospel. The gospel is the fact that Jesus didn't simply intersect 2,000 years ago's history timeline, but that he intersected my life when I was eight years old in an apartment building in La Crescenta, California, when my mom led me to the Lord. That, that's, that's my, that's, I own that. I own that. And if you're in Christ, you do too. So today what we're going to be talking through is, is the, the gospel mandate, the gospel message, and the gospel method of how we communicate that. And that's where we're going to be in the passage. So we're going to start off with the gospel mandate. And if you have your notes, that, there's that verse there from Romans 1.16. Uh, Pastor Jason highlighted it when he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I used to think that meant the Bible, um, but that's not what Paul, Paul's, I mean, he could have said that about the Bible, but that's not what he's speaking about. He's, he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the good news, this message of what Jesus has accomplished. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And that, that's huge. And so as we are getting into another um, letter that Paul writes in, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, let's go ahead and take a look at what does this mandate look like. Paul's writing to a church here who's, he's not going to go super deep into theology. He does that in the book of Romans. In, in the, the letters to the church in Corinth, he's talking to people who are, are kind of like, their lives are a mess in a lot of ways. So he's, he's shooting straight with them, but he's also a lot of time coming from a place of insecurity. I don't know if you've ever like posted anything out of insecurity on, on Facebook or, or you just felt like insecure. You felt like you needed to defend yourself. And, and you write something at coming from that angle. Paul, in a lot of his writings, especially to Corinth, he's having to defend himself because they're like, look, you were like, you're a Jewish elite dude who hated Jesus and hated Christians. You killed them. How do we believe you? And on top of that, Paul, there's people who speak better than you. So I'd rather follow that guy than follow you. Paul's just like, listen, I had this encounter with Jesus. It's real. What I'm saying about him is accurate. And you're listening to some people who are taking you off the path. And so a lot of his passages, he sounds like he's defending himself, saying, listen, just listen to this. Listen to what I'm saying. And this passage kind of comes from, uh, at least um, nods itself to that reality. But he's talking about the fact that one day we are all going to be in front of Jesus in judgment and that our lives are going to be presented before him. And so verse 11 of chapter 5 says this, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So since we know that we're going to be before God one day, we're going to be before Jesus face to face, we make our, we recognize that our life matters, that right now matters. It's not just like one day we're going to catch up with God in heaven, but right now matters. So we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. And then this is where he's, he's, he's making it clear in verse 12. I'm not trying to just like, like buoy me up and like let people think that I'm all that. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We're trying to give you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Verse 13, if we're, look, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and that all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In the first letter to the church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, listen, we, can, we're, we disagree about a lot of stuff, and we can debate all day long some of the nuances of our faith. But let me pass on to you what, what it was passed on to me of the primary importance. Jesus died. And everyone's like, yeah, we know that. 
So he doesn't give any like eyewitnesses because everyone's like, yeah, we, we know that. We know, that's, we know that happened. It only happened a couple years ago. And he says, and he, raised, he was raised again. And let me give you names of people who saw him. Let me let you know that this took place in front of 500 people that are still alive today that you can go and talk to. This is the primary thing that we need. To, this is our starting point. Because if Jesus died and rose again, everything changes. The way we look at ourselves changes. The way that we look at our past changes. The way that we look at our future changes. Everything flips upside down, if that's the reality. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anybody, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And the word, he uses uh, an aorist tense for the old is gone, which means that this was like it's in the past, and it has no ability to speak into our future. Like, how many of you have ever woken up from a, a dream, like maybe with a spouse or a friend or something, and that person was a total jerk in that dream to you, and it spoke into the rest of your day the way that you looked at them and treated them, and they're like, what is your issue, man? What's your damage, right? Has anyone done that? Is it just me? Because I hate that. I really hate when Julie, that happens to Julie, but I, mean, I hate that. Okay, what Paul is saying is this, the nightmare of our past, of our shame, of our sin, that is aorist. It is gone. It's, it's, it uses the tense that says, it's, it, it's a period at the end of the sentence. It has no ability to speak into our current reality or our future reality. It is gone. The past is gone. The new, the old is gone, the new has come. And, and the tense that he uses for that word, that this has arrived, is perfect tense. It's established. It's done. It's perfect. You don't need to add to it. It can't be taken away from you. It's yours. The old is gone. The new, it's come. It's here. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, us, you and me, the ministry of reconciliation. We've talked about this before. There's a difference between forgiving someone and being reconciled to that person, okay? If I um, hired like a lawn care company to come in and mow my lawn, which I would never do because I've got kids and it's way cheaper. But if I did, if I did that, and let's say this lawn care company comes, um, let's say this is Doug's lawn care company, Doug's lawn care company, he comes and he not only does a, a garbagey job of mowing my lawn, but he has an accident with one of the lawnmowers because he was just being reckless, like Doug, and he burns down my house. My house is gone. My, my lawn looks like garbage. Every, all my pictures are destroyed. I had a hamster in there, Doug, a hamster toast. Now, I'm a Christian, but I love that hamster. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, and I'm called to forgive Doug, but I'm not necessarily called to reconcile with him. Reconciliation means we're going to make everything that was broken whole again, like it never happened. Forgiveness says, I forgive Doug. I'm no longer going to hold bitterness against him. Reconciliation is, Doug, you, you burned down my, my house, you wrecked my lawn, and you killed my hamster. You, you, can you come back on Monday? I mean, because I'd love for you to redo the lawn. That's reconciliation. You, you're rehired. That's goofy. There's certain th people that we don't reconcile with, but we forgive. Paul is saying that God went the extra mile of not simply forgiving us, not simply saying, I forgive you for everything you did, but we can never, ever have a relationship again. You're always going to be like this. Paul says that God not only forgave us, he reconciled us. He did what was necessary to make it as if it never happened, that, that we are made whole now. And then he says, and that's not only for you, that's for the people 
in your surrounding, in your influence. And you know who has got the ministry of reconciliation? You do. Not your pastor. Not the most spiritual person you know in, in your small group. It's you. He says that, and he's saying that to a bunch of people who are really messed up. And so you should feel like you're in a really good place because, yeah, they had some serious issues. He says this, that God, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel mandate. We have been given a mandate to share this news, not just hoard it, not just, you know, rob it for ourselves, but, but to own it. But if we're going to have a message, we need to know what the message is. So what is the gospel message? Most of us do not share our faith with our friends, not because we don't care about them. We care about them a lot, but we're afraid that we're going to mess it up. True? Like we don't, we don't, or we're afraid that they're going to ask us a question that we can't answer. Oh, okay, you're going to tell me about God? Okay, well, yeah, tell me about this in the Bible. What about this? Or how can Christians be so hypocritical this would happen? And then you're like, uh, you're right. I don't know. And we freak out. But see, the thing is that the gospel message is not some like artificial, you know, thing that you're, where you've, got, you've got the whole communication package complete. It's simply saying what, what the person that Jesus healed of his blindness said. Listen, I, don't, I can't tell you everything about Jesus. I don't, know how the whole, I don't have the whole thing worked out or all the questions answered, but I can tell you this. I was blind, but now I see. And it was Jesus that did it. And so what we're going to talk about today is actually getting the components of the gospel in a way that we can like really memorize and know and say, okay, I'm not just memorizing some fake thing. This is something that's part of my story. And it, it's based, and this isn't germane to me. I, I, uh, somebody else developed this of taking the word gospel and breaking it down so that we could understand each of the components. So if you've got your notes, this is going to be helpful. If you've got notes on the app, this is also going to be helpful. Take a look. First off, it starts with G. Our story, the gospel message, starts with the fact that God creates us to be with him. You open up the Bible and you see that. God is complete, and yet he created us to have relationship, not to have slaves, not because he was needy, because he desired relationship. God created us to be with him. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. And we go from that opening, which is a great opening, to the next part, which is where we see, oh, oh actually steps into the fact that our sin separates us from God. You get two chapters into the Bible before we mess things up. I mean, it wasn't a long time. But here's the thing. A lot of Christians, when they're trying to tell someone about Jesus, they start here. You're a sinner. You are a messed up, evil, wicked person. How dare you? That's not how the Bible handles the gospel. The Bible handles the gospel by starting with the fact that God created us to be with him. He loves us. It is our sin that separates us from him. In your notes, you have this in Isaiah 59. It says, surely God's arm is not so short that he can't save us, or his ear so dull that he can't hear us. No, it is our iniquities which have separated us from our God. It is our sin which has hidden his face from us, and he will not hear us. 
Our sin has separated us. And there's not a single person here who needs to be convinced of the fact that we do wrong, that, that, that this is something that, that is a reality. Our sin separates us from God. And every single person, when you've done something wrong and when I do something wrong, we have two reactions. First is to be defensive. Um, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But then once we realize we can't get out of it, we do the next thing, which is to try to cover it up. Look, I know I messed up, but I wanna make it right. I, I could do this, I can make this right, I wanna make this right. But sin can't be removed by good deeds. God created us for a relationship with him. Our sin separates us from God, but sin can't be covered over by good deeds. Okay, and we need to know that. Uh, If you you were in a relationship with a spouse and that spouse cheated on you, let's say that that, that you're you're female, you're married to this guy, and he cheated on you, cheated on you, cheated on you. And, you're, and, then you're, and, and, but, and then some people get around you to try to help walk you through this. And they're talking with you and trying to counsel you, trying to see if we can save this marriage. And then all of a sudden, the, the husband just says something stupid. Where he's like, listen, I know I've cheated on you. I know I broke our marriage vows. I know, I, I know I've betrayed your trust. But here's the deal. I'm going to make it up to you. I know you love pancakes. Love pancakes. I'm going to do my best at least once a month to make you pancakes from here on out. If not every month, every other month, but it's going to be somewhat consistent. Are we good? We good now? Come here, bring it in. When the level of betrayal is not, I mean, that's awful. I mean, you would straight up sock that guy's right in the jaw, right? When the level of betrayal is even deeper, we recognize that we can't simply do good deeds. And the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 4 through Malachi 4, talks about the fact that God provides ways for us to reconnect, but that those rituals and sacrifices could never accomplish forgiveness. In fact, people got so ritualistic that they were doing this stuff thinking that they were removing their evil deeds. I can go out and like live however I want and then go and sacrifice to God and boom, we're all good. And God says through the prophets, through Hosea and others, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care about your good deeds. I want your heart. I want your heart. Well, if I can't cover over what I've done wrong, who can? And that's where we get to the P of gospel, which is paying the price. Jesus died and rose again. By the time we get into the New Testament and we get to the gospels, God reveals what he's been forecasting and promoting and and pushing towards, which is that we can't do this, but he can. And again, we have to understand the fact that Jesus is the only one, as opposed to our good deeds, he's the only one who can satisfy this. He's the only one who who could make things right. Because we have to realize we have not just simply wronged somebody, we've wronged God. And so only God could rescue us from that. If you go over there and Pastor Josh lets out all the Echo kids and you see that he gave like a kid a lollipop and you go up and you like steal it from him, you're a messed up person. I'm just telling you that right now. But let's just say you did it, okay? The consequences of that may be that that kid's dad is going to look at you and say, dude, what's the deal? Why are you doing that? And you're like, I like great lollipops. What am I going to do? The heart wants what the heart wants. And, you, and he, might get, he might get mad at you. He might punch you in the, I don't know, he might punch you in the, in the parking lot. But, but that's the extent of it, you wronging a kid, stealing a lollipop. If you got caught stealing from your workplace, you'd have more than just someone confronting you. You could lose your livelihood. If you got caught stealing from the government, you could lose your freedom. 
Same, same thing, stealing. But who you wrong indicates how damaging that was to you and to everyone else. When we have wronged God and we've stolen his rightful place as the master of our life with our rebellion against, from him, against him, we can't just make this up and make this go away. The only one who could pay the price was Christ. Romans 5, 8, it's in your notes, uh, 5, uh, 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person some may dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. I love this. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still in our sin, while we were still wicked, while we were still in rebellion, while we were there, he died for us. Amen? He did what we could not do. He paid the price because we could not pay the price for ourselves. As, as good news as this is, this isn't complete because we as people disqualify ourselves even after that. That sounds great. And that must be just for like really good people or people who haven't done as much wrong as I've done. But I have done some messed up stuff. I've, done, I've stolen from a kid at Echo. I've done, I've done things where in my marriage, I've done things in my private life that I, I can't forgive myself. How could God forgive me? And that's where we see the, the reality of Scripture continuing to point out that his love is greater than even our sin, and that everyone, everyone means everyone, everyone who puts their trust in him and him alone has eternal life. That ball game message of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That word believe, it's the word pisteo, and that means to not just believe, like I just, I believe, I believe. It's to like wager your trust on. It's like I'm betting on Jesus. I'm betting my life on Jesus. Do I have all the answers? No, but I'm, I'm doing a trust fall and putting my trust in who he is and what he has accomplished. I'm putting my trust in his sacrifice, in his death and his resurrection. That's what I'm putting my trust in. Not myself, not my own works, because I realize I can't do that. I'm putting my trust in what he's done and everyone that does that is saved. Jesus said it himself. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans uh, 10 verse 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe, pisteo, if you trust, you put your trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So even if you feel disqualified, the message of the gospel is there's not one single person who has so much baggage, not anyone, that they're beyond the scope of the hope that we have in the gospel, which leads us to the final letter, which is L, the life. Because God does not simply save you so that he can catch up with you in heaven one day, but life, life with Jesus starts now and it goes on for eternity. See, this is the thing. God has called you right now. Your life matters now. God doesn't just care about, about your future, your eternity. Your life matters now. He has saved you and brought you into a reality where you're actually on mission right now. You, right now, matter to him. And you might feel like, that's great, but I don't feel like I'm really good at this life that he's called me to. In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, talks about how we're saved by grace through faith. It's not something that we've done so we could boast about it, but it's, it's his gift. And that he has equipped us before time to do every good work that he's called us into. This is the gospel. And the truth is, is that when we look at this, we can see how this covers the scope of the scripture. The Bible is drenched with gospel, not just the New Testament. The whole Bible is pointing to this reality that if you're in him, you share. But on top of of sharing it, it's something that speaks into your life in a profound way. Um, There was an artist, a spoken word artist by the name of Propaganda, who five, six years ago um, took this acronym and kind of spelled it out a little bit. And sometimes uh, it's, it's one thing to hear something, but when an artist can kind of add something to it, it, it just allows us to hear it on a different level. And so I'd like to, you to just to hear this message of the gospel through the spoken word work of propaganda. Take a listen. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints as if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, sins. It's nature inherited. Black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection. But silly us, trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. 
That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment yes payment wrote a check with his life but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared pierced feet pierced hands blood-stained son of man fullness forgiveness free passage into the promised land that same breath that god breathed into us god gave up to redeem us and anyone and everyone and by everyone i mean everyone who puts their faith and trust in him and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so just do that. Okay. Just do that. You can do it. I got some dreads backstage. We're golden. Or you could do what Christians have done for 2000 years, which is realizing when it comes to the method, the gospel method, there is no the gospel method. Every time you hear someone say, this is the way to share your faith, you have to recognize the fact that that may work for them. They may be stoked on the fact that they've seen God do some amazing things through that, but there is no method. Every method needs to be time-sensitive, cultural-sensitive, context-sensitive, and who you're talking to sensitive. The method will always change. The message will not. The message will not. The message is not changed. This is the message. But the truth is, is that whoever you talk to, that method will be augmented. I'm going to put a link on NBC's Facebook page to a couple of great like iPhone um, or Android um, apps that can help you walk through the gospel with someone. But guess what? In six months, they're going to be obsolete. What's not going to be obsolete is this. This message and the fact that God has specifically and strategically called you into context with people to share it in a way that others can hear. And here's what I want to challenge you with, that even though the methods will always change, we can emulate from Paul how to communicate and proclaim that message. And the first way is this, by believing, second, by being real, and third, by being bold. When we actually start off with the gospel by saying, I 
I'm not just connected to this because of my church. This is my story. I believe it. At the beginning of that passage we studied earlier, Paul talks about the fact that people think that he's out of his mind and crazy. He had everything going for him. He was established religiously, and now he's flipping that to go on the rogue road following Jesus the Messiah. That's crazy. And the truth is, is that if you actually believe in Jesus and you actually start living that out in your context, at work, at school, in your home, people are going to look at you like you're nuts because they know the old you. And your communication of the old me is gone and the new has come and it's here, that's going to cause them to go, what? Believe. Start with the fact that you're believing this. Secondly, be real. The world does not need any more uppity, self-righteous Christians, does it? No. You know them. I am that person sometimes, where I walk into a context and I judge people because I know that they're far from God. I'm like, well, at least I'm saved. Being real, one of the things I love about Paul all throughout his passages is he does this thing where he's got every reason to boast, but he constantly is saying, everything that I have to boast in my faith and my righteousness is garbage. It's garbage compared to the grace of God. In fact, I'm probably the worst sinner out there. You think you do messed up stuff? I I know what's right, I know what I should do, and I do the wrong thing anyway. Paul is constantly being real. I guarantee you're surrounded by people who are failing in life, but they have covered themselves with a facade of everything's complete and all together. You know what failure's like, and so do I. It's part of our story. But you not only know the sin, but you also know the Savior. You not only know brokenness, you know what has brought you through brokenness. Be real about that. Don't be uppity. Don't come as the person who's got all the answers because you don't. I don't either. Be someone who's communicating his story, what he's done in an authentic and humble way, but be bold. Don't let humility lead you to being soft or soft peddling or acting as if this message is a nice extracurricular activity for super spiritual Christians, but not for me. This is what we have been entrusted with to boldly share with a world that absolutely needs it. The wrath of God, the eternal separation after death is a reality. But what Paul says in that passage is God is not counting men's sins against them anymore because a payment has been made. And that's for everyone. And it's life. We have that life. Be bold. That's going to take place around coffee conversations. It's going to take place at school. It's going to take place on buses. It's going to take place in your workplace or in your living room. It's going to take place with the person that lives across the street that you don't even talk to except for when you see them getting their their mail. And part of being bold is also leveraging opportunities where you're like, sometimes people just listen better. There's this big deal in the church um, that's coming up. It's called Easter. You may have heard of it. Big deal, right? It's a big deal to Christians, but it's also a big deal to people who wouldn't consider themselves Christians, but are like, yeah, you know, I'm an American, so I go to church on Easter probably. And so you might be someone who's who's around that person, and you could say, and we're actually creating up uh, thousands of these little guys to for this business card for people to hand out, for you to hand out, representatives of Christ, just to say, hey, are you doing church on Easter? You know, I did that when I was a little kid. I just, I haven't done that in years, to be honest. It kind of annoys me. Christians annoy me. Are you a Christian? And then you could share with them, yes, I am. But then you could say, listen, what if we did this? What if we like, um, went and got like, food before or after 
And we, and we actually went to the service together. I'd love for you to, uh, we'll, we'll save you a seat next to us. We're going to have these out. I want to challenge you to be bold with that. Which, of course, brings us to um, Finding Dory. Jason started this whole series with, with talking about Finding Dory. I'm going to close the service with this. Um, Finding Dory, if you haven't seen it, I'm co- totally going to ruin the ending for you. So here it goes. It's a, it's a movie about this uh, fish that's super forgetful, has short-term memory loss, right? And the beginning of Finding Nemo, the first movie, it was just kind of a joke. But then you get into Finding Dory, and you realize that, this, that it's, it's not a joke. It's kind of sad. And this fact is that Dory doesn't know where her, her, her she doesn't know her parents, and she, she's lost her way home. And she has no hope of getting back home. And so her friends try to help her get there, but they fail time and time again. And at the end of the movie, you have Dory again lost and alone and searching and lonely and lost. And, and, and just wishing that she didn't have this condition where she forgets. And then she sees a shell and another shell and another shell. And all of a sudden, the audience is brought into the storyline, the backstory of the fact that she remembers that that's what her parents did, knowing her daughter's short-term memory loss, knowing that her daughter was prone to wander. They would put shells leading back home so that she could find her way back. And after all of these years, she was a little kid when she got lost, and now she's, she's all grown up. She sees this trail of shells going, and then she sees another trail going, and then the camera pans out, and you see that the entire ocean floor in that area is filled with these trails by her parents trying to lead Dory home. And then she sees her parents, and they're, they're, they're coming in out of the darkness with more shells to put more paths back for, she, her, for Dory to come back home. Your friends who are far from God, who are far from the Heavenly Father, he has planted shells to lead them back home, and that's you. He has strategically placed on the ocean floor of your world your words and your actions to guide them back home to the Heavenly Father. If the church is the representation of Christ to the world, MBC, are you representing? Or are you letting that happen with someone else? Let us be the type of place that seriously recognizes that God has called us to be a community of Christ followers who are committed to being real with God, real with each other, and real in the world, and that we do that better together. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I just pray a commissioning prayer over this group. Help us step into this mission. Help us be bold. And God, I pray that the victory in the people's lives that we're surrounded by, you're going to receive all the glory from that. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's go do it.